Please be seated. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you for the warm welcome that uh, you extend to me when I come with you, come to see you from time to time. Thank you, Minda, for your kind uh, hospitality as we prepare to come. You're in for a treat, by the way. Lou Ann King, who's going to speak uh, in a week or two, uh, is a good friend, and um, that will be a wonderful event, I assure you. Have you had this experience before? It happens to me from time to time. It happened to me just a few weeks ago. I was at Panera, and Panera does not have queues, or as we say, lines. And uh, somebody who had been there less time than I walked up to the next available cash register and placed their order. Well, it gives me the opportunity when that happens to note that this is the decline and fall of Western society when... (laughs) when people can just step to the front of the line without permission. But we have really, in this story of Mark's Gospel, a similar dynamic, except one much more serious. And truth be told, in our own lives, when it comes to some desperate need from God, and we wait for a long time for God to move or act, and we see him moving and acting, or we hear about it in the lives of others, we sometimes wonder, God, will you not take us in the order in which we've come to you? Will you not receive us in our order of need? We have exactly that kind of story here, and I think God speaks to us a great deal about when we are in those kinds of situations. It's a life and death situation here. And Jairus calls Jesus 911. But on the way to help, Jesus is sidetracked and Jairus' daughter dies. We don't have to do a whole lot to put ourselves in Jairus' shoes. While we may have not been in as urgent situation, we also may have been at times. But this story presents to us the challenge of waiting on God. God helps others, but we think what we need is more urgent and yet we have to wait. But there's a point, and this is what I think Mark's gospel teaches us this morning, there's a point to the kind of waiting that goes on in this story. In just another couple of chapters, the crowds will say of Jesus, he does all things well. But we're going to learn from this story that God in Christ not only does all things well, he does them in his time. And by doing them in his time, he teaches us about true virtue. We're going to learn from these two stories that Jesus exalts humble and utter dependence over privileged presumption. That Jesus exalts humble and utter dependence over privileged presumption. And I want us to see that by letting the story speak for itself. Because to begin with, we need to note that this is not two stories. I've heard sermons, perhaps you have two, of uh, the beginning and the end of the story as one sermon, as if it is one story, and then the story of the woman's plight in the middle is preached or told as a separate story. But uh, this is very characteristic of Mark, and if you want to take a little Bible interpretation lesson home for you today, Mark often does what scholars call Markin sandwiches. Uh, that a story will begin, and then it will get interrupted. 
and then the first story will resume. Sort of like a piece of bread and a piece of bread with, and you put what you want in the middle, jelly, a hamburger, whatever. But this is really Mark's way of telling single stories. And as we're going to see at the end, these two stories must be told together. Look first at the context of this story. Both of the women or females in this story have the same problem in the end. They're both stories of unclean things made clean. Uh, The little girl is dead, and by virtue of being dead, she is unclean, something that a holy man would not touch. And yet this, this woman has suffered for 12 years in an unclean state, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But both of these stories have to do with Jesus' authority and how he uses that authority to teach us about divine waiting. Up to this point, Jesus has been dealing with unclean things. Uh, There's an unclean spirit in a man in chapter 1 that Jesus casts out. Uh, There is a healing of a leper shortly after that. A leper would be unclean under the laws of Moses. Uh, A paralyzed man. Uh, cleanliness on the Sabbath day, a man with a withered hand, and demon-possessed men in the early part of chapter 5. And these stories ultimately lead to Jesus having an argument with the religious leaders in chapter 7 about who has authority to say what is clean and what is unclean and what makes people clean and unclean. And that's the background as we begin to think about the events here and you'll see there's a threefold pattern or a threefold development of this story. The first thing we'll see is a summons based on status. A summons based on status. That's Jairus' request for his daughter. But then we're going to see the interruption, which is a diversion born out of desperation. The woman's situation is urgent. And then after Jesus heals her, He's going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, which will provide a clarification for all of us about the nature of God's kingdom. I said there's a summons based on status. It's the request that begins this sequence. Uh, When Jesus crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we're told in verse 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him he fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And we're told that Jesus went with him. Now, Jairus is named in this story, and that's significant. Not everybody is named that Jesus touches or heals or, or, or ministers to in Mark's gospel. And the fact that his name is mentioned is significant, but his status is also significant. He's a synagogue official. He, uh, in our world, might be a Presbyterian elder, for instance, or something higher, uh, like the person who puts the flowers at the front of the church on Sunday morning, or counts the offering, the person who opens and closes the doors of the church. This is somebody who is invested in in Israel's religion. He's a leader, and he is perceived as so. And I think the story is probably even suggesting that he's able to make his way through the crowd because he shows up with a VIP pass, so to speak. 
He is recognized official, and, 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 and the crowd makes way for him to have direct access to Jesus because we know Jesus is being thronged, don't we? But we can't blame him, can we? His need is urgent. He may be the only one there who has a loved one who is near death. So we don't blame him. His need is urgent and it's deep. And he, he expresses his respect for Jesus by making this request. He fell at his feet before Jesus, indicating he's not coming in uh, expecting a favor, but he is in real need. And he even makes his request publicly before all the other synagogue members. So his request begins this story, but then there's an interrupting story. And in Mark's little sandwiches, this is the jelly. Now, look at how this woman is described with this great crowd following him and thronging about him. We're told there's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is some kind of a hemorrhage. It's probably some kind of a gynecological condition. Uh, This would have made her obviously very uncomfortable, if not uh, chronically ill. But it's, it's, it's more than that going on, because her condition would have made her ceremonially unclean under the law of Moses. And think about what that means. It means not only she's suffering this condition, which must have been miserable on its own rights, but she's cut off from God's people. She couldn't come in contact with people who were themselves preparing to devote themselves to worship. She was untouchable. But not only was she cut off from God's people, she herself could not go to the temple. She was cut off from God. She was alienated, alone, and miserable. And Mark's description confirms that we're told she had suffered much under many physicians. You know, think of those times you've gone from doctor to doctor not getting an answer or not getting a cure and had spent all that she had. Her resources were gone. She had no recourse. She was impoverished because of her condition. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. For all her efforts, she had not even maintained, but rather had declined in her condition. It's non-specific as to what it is, but the length of time is explicit. Twelve years. Twelve years. I had a doctor cut on my toe a week ago, almost a week ago tomorrow. And a big toe is a very vital organ, I've learned. And it seemed like a long week to me. But 12 years, 12 years, not only of her chronic condition, but of her isolation and her alienation. Her situation or her condition is referred to in verse 29 as um, a disease, but the word there is often normally translated as a lash or a whip. And she'd been under that whip for 12 long years. And we see the dramatic scene. She, she doesn't want to trouble Jesus. She, she doesn't want to distract him or sidetrack him. But she thinks, if I just simply touch him, 
I'll be healed. She won't even occupy his line of vision. She won't even require words from him. Because the combination, the recipe of her desperation and her hope in what she has heard about him caused her to believe that he will heal her. And when Jesus detects it, the the disciples scoff when he asks who, who did this. You can imagine if you've ever been to a major sporting event or a concert or any kind of rush or throng of people, uh, you're being jostled and bounced all around. I've traveled in a lot of developing world countries with my hand on my wallet or my wallet in my front pocket, and there's just no escaping the crowd, right? And what do the disciples do? They mock. They say, um, his disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? They mock. They will not be the last mockers in this sequence of stories, will they? Jesus will find mockers in the dead daughter's house shortly. But Jesus turned to her and spoke to her. She fell down before him, just like Jairus had done only moments before. And he calls her by a name. He calls her by the name Daughter. And he doesn't do that lightly, but he does it to say something about his relationship with her. She has come to him seeking the help of the Divine Father, and she has found it. And he has confirmed it not only by the fact that she is healed, but by his naming of her as daughter. Jesus confirmed in word then what had happened. It said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And in doing so, Jesus did more than just heal her disease, as you can see now. He restored her, not only in health, but he restored her to social relationships. I don't know if you've ever been isolated or shut in for a period of time or for one reason or another cut off from all fellowship, relationship, but she has been restored to that, that which she had suffered for 12 years. And not only that, she had been restored to divine fellowship because now she was able to go to the temple for those great feasts, those great celebrations, not only the people of God, but of the divine acts for His people that He had done for them in history. Her request is very different from Jairus's, And Jesus' response is also very different. She's reticent in contrast to the assertive Jairus. But then the story resumes, except with a twist, a tragic twist, right? What began as a rescue will now require what? A resurrection. It's a fatal delay. The call for healing has become now a call for the coroner. And this is where waiting enters in. The subject of waiting hits us full in the face. In 1981, my father had his first and last heart attack. I was an hour and a half away, but as it was told to me by my mother later, we lived in a little town in southern Illinois in the 
ambulance as well as the fire department was volunteer. She called 911, and it seemed like an eternity. If you've probably been in that situation where you've called 911, and, uh, and it seems like forever, no matter how short the time is. But in this story, however long it was, it was too late in the eyes of the people. It says that while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And you see, there's still respect being directed toward Jesus. He's acknowledged as the teacher. But Jesus, who does all things well and does them in his time, knows that it's not too late. As they, in verse 36 here of the report, we're told that Jesus in my translation, it says, overheard what they had said. And it's a particular word there. It's not simply that he was within earshot and just happened to catch a phrase. It's a word um, such as uh, a commander in a, in a, of a military in, in the fog of war might be gathering data to make his strategy. Jesus overhears, but not in a chance way, because he is in command of this whole sequence of events. And it tells us that in the fog of war, Jesus is not confused. This information is not a surprise to him. In fact, he is fully in control and following his plan of action on his timetable And so they return to the house. Now, when they get to the house, Jesus runs into another crowd. It's probably a a company of professional mourners mixed in with some relatives and friends because Jesus can hear them from a distance, a commotion, people weeping and wailing. And when he enters in, he asks, why are you making a commotion and weeping? As if he doesn't know. And there he finds another kind of crowd whose voice sounds very much like the disciples when Jesus turned to ask who had touched him. Peter, James, and John are with him because they will eventually be commissioned to proclaim this good news to the ends of the earth. And so he takes them in to the girl's room only with the father as a witness. When he, when he hears the report that she is dead, he responds, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Not because she's not dead. Not because the ancients didn't know when life had left a body, but because to Jesus, death is only as sleep. He enters the girl's room, And he took her by the hand. And here we have a holy man touching an unclean, the most unclean thing imaginable. But you see, Jesus is a different kind of holy man. He's not like the priest who could only tell a leper whether he had leprosy or not. Remember when Jesus healed the lepers, he said, go and show yourself to the priests. But he's a different kind of a holy man. He's a holy man who can make unclean things 
clean. And the way, the only way to make a corpse clean is to make it live. And he says to her in Aramaic, which was the, the dialect of Hebrew spoken at the time of Jesus, he says to her, Talitha kumi, which in Aramaic, Mark tells us, means little girl, arise, I say to you. He physically touched her, and instead of being contaminated by death, he raises her from death to life. He took charge of the situation, but we're mistaken to think if he was ever not in charge of the situation. And he calls for those who witness this to believe. and charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Now that little phrase at the end there, by the way, is intriguing to people when they read, especially in Mark's Gospel. Uh, We call it the messianic secret in scholarly circles. But you'll see in the first half of Mark's Gospel, Jesus telling people, don't tell anyone, keep the secret. And there are a couple of reasons for that. It's just a sidebar. Mark's gospel began with a parable which Jesus told, telling us that some people see and some people don't. Some people hear and some people don't. There are four kinds of seeds, and only the good seed, only the good soil, rather, there are four kinds of soils, only the good soil bears fruit. So, When Jesus says, don't tell anyone, it's not as if he can keep this secret, and it's not as if he wants his identity to be secret. But there's another thing going on in Mark's gospel, too, and if you sat down and read um, up through his entry to Jerusalem, you would see this, that Jesus' identity is something that is progressively revealed. It's like watching a bud through um, uh, uh, the right kind of... uh, uh, camera exposure, you've seen a flower bloom as if uh, automatically, but it takes place over time. Well, that's how Jesus' identity comes. Uh, the, The first eight or ten chapters of Mark's gospel are pressing this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And it makes the reader, it makes each one of us answer that question all throughout his gospel. Who do we say that he is? That's the question he eventually asks his disciples in chapter 8. So there's no mystery here. It is the way in which Jesus reveals himself, this unfolding flower of him as the Messiah and as God incarnate. But we've looked at the stories together now. I just want to complete the picture by stitching, if you will, the three acts of this story together. The middle story obviously adds to the drama, doesn't it? I don't know, on the news, every once in a while in Orlando, you'll see a, an ambulance squad is, uh, is, is seen going to 7-Eleven for a break when they should have been going on a call. You get those kind of stories down here. Or uh, uh, a policeman, you know, sitting drinking coffee in a, in a restaurant and when something's going on and somebody needs him. Well, that, that middle story here creates that kind of drama. Where are you, Jesus, when people need you? kind of drama. But the stories, the the beginning and the end of the first story and the middle story have a lot more to do with one another than just adding drama. 
We're told that Jesus commended the woman because she had faith. Uh, In verse 36, he said to Jairus, only believe. Now, we miss this in English because the verb to believe sounds a lot like the noun faith in Greek. So Jesus, in essence, said to Jairus, have faith. So the word faith is in both stories. And in both stories, Jesus uses his hands to touch the people involved. Another thread that stitches these two stories together is the number 12. And we're told a little girl in verse 42 got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. We don't need to know that detail unless there's something Mark wants us to know from that detail. Well, it's relevant to this story, isn't it? As long as this little girl has been alive, this woman has suffered. Her cause is as urgent as that little girl's. But there's a word that even more wonderfully draws it all together. This little girl was the daughter of Jairus. And that's why she was precious to him. This woman is someone that Jesus calls daughter because she is precious to him. Fear is found in both stories. The falling at Jesus' feet in both stories. And faith, the basis of the woman's healing. So you can see, this is really a story, as the sermon title suggests, the story of two daughters. And we might miss the fact that the woman is a daughter of God unless Jesus tells us that she is, which he has. These are two daughters in desperate situations. One whose father has a name and a status before men. The other one who is not even named, but who has a father who has a name and a status even greater than Jairus. One story has a father who appeals to Jesus face to face. Another story with a daughter who hoped to be unnoticed and who only approached Jesus from behind. One daughter is from a privileged family, a family with status. One daughter is from no status. One daughter believed. And one whose ambassador only needed to believe. In some respects, you could put the two stories together and simply say that Jairus is the one who must learn from the woman. Jairus, the religious authority, the man of respect and esteem, must look to this unnamed, unclean, pitiful woman to know how to approach the mercy seat of God. That's the story. From this story, there are a few things we can take away from it. These are not stories to teach us how to get what we want from God, by the way. They're often projected that way. I 
I know and have heard people even say it to me in years past. You just don't have enough faith. And uh, if you weren't here this morning, you could turn your television on and probably hear ten sermons about it's the quantity of our faith that makes God act. It's not the case at all. But the story teaches us rather something about God. First of all, it teaches us this, that Jesus is a worthy object of faith. You know, the disciples toward the end were asked by Jesus, will you go away also? And the disciples said, to whom else shall we go? You alone have words of eternal life. And you know, that's, this is how desperation works. This is how waiting is a grace to us. Because until we have seen many physicians, spent all that we've had, and are no better but grow worse, we're not ready often to look to Jesus as a worthy object of faith. You know, truth be told, most American Christians uh, have really what's called a synergistic view of God. It's like a song, I'll get by with a little help instead of my friends. It's God. Christian Smith, the church historian and sociologist, has identified American belief as moral therapeutic deism. If we do enough right, God will help us with our problems. But it's a, it's a disordered relationship, and therefore there are disordered affections in that approach to God. Jesus is this woman's only hope. And until Christ becomes our only hope, we'll still continue to hope in broken cisterns that can't hold water instead of coming to Him as the fountain of living water. So one takeaway for, the, for us this morning is to see how this can transform our orientation to the question, who is Jesus? He is not only a worthy object of faith, but to be a, our object of faith, He must be our exclusive object of faith. And if you are in a time of waiting and your favorite verse in the Bible is from the Psalms, How long, O Lord? It'll be long enough to fall at the feet of Jesus, if you will. Jesus is a worthy object of faith. Second thing we can take away, Jesus makes unclean things clean. He's been doing it since chapter 1, and he keeps on doing it until he announces the crucifixion, which is ahead of him. And this touches on the issue of what we would call today shame. Because the laws of Moses, Christ has fulfilled the laws, the ceremonial laws, those no longer are binding upon us, but they teach us about shame and alienation from God. Reminds me of a story of a young pastor friend of mine. He was a very virtuous young guy and very handsome, according to experts who are authorities on that, my wife. And he was single 
uh, and he became a pastor, which that's a whole rocky shoal to navigate, being a young single man and being a pastor. But, of course, he was interested in being married, and he, and uh, my wife says he didn't realize how handsome he was sometimes. But there was one woman in particular he became very interested in. Uh, she was a very commendable young lady, but as they grew closer and closer, uh, she became more and more burdened because she, she had a past. And she, she was sure that once he knew about her past, that he would, he would uh, want out of the relationship. And so she was going to give him an opportunity. And so one night he picked her up to go out on a date, and she said, please come in first. And she sat him down on the couch, and she said, I need to tell you about my past. And in a wonderful moment of gospel clarity and tenderness, he said to her, if God views you as chaste, who am I to speak a different word? You know, the, Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And probably you women have an easier time identifying with this woman. Uh, it seems like, uh, generally speaking, that uh, women are more sensible, I won't say susceptible, to shame. But men, our problem is not susceptibility, but it's sensibility. You know, we tend to hide our shame deeper. Uh, we tend to uh, put it in places where people can't perceive it as easily. We carry our shame about in our secret thoughts of our failures, our failures as fathers, as husbands, our failures uh, to our own fathers sometimes. But here we have, as men, an exemplar in this woman. And you know, when people realize there is a place to take your shame, then it's so much more easy to bring it out into the open. And that's what the gospel does. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. He scoffed at the shame. He bore it, but he knew that resurrection was before him. He knew that life comes through cross. And not only life for him, but life for us. This is why Paul is able to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so Jude is able to speak of how we can approach God without shame as he ends his letter. The gospel, and more specifically Jesus, makes unclean things clean. For those who are willing to cast their shame on him, to accept his atoning death as the sign of their own ignominy.
and to stand before God cleansed, pure, and clean. But Jesus is not only a worthy object of faith, not only does he make unclean things clean, Jesus here redefines what is true virtue. In other words, it it transforms our understanding of what God looks upon favorably. The woman comes to Jesus in humble faith. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I think we sang that just a few moments ago. Not the labors of my hand. If my soul, my zeal could no respite, no. It's, it's coming to Christ empty-handed, which is true virtue. Isaiah said this centuries before Jesus. In Isaiah 66, verse 3, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How do you want to get God's attention? How do you want to queue up for what you need desperately for God to do or somebody? The idols of your heart have disappointed you. We know the psalmist says that those who worship them become like them. And yet, humility is put forward to us as the greatest of human virtues. She becomes the exemplar, not just for Jairus, this woman, but she comes, becomes an exemplar for all of us. Cast your cares on him, Peter says, because he cares for you. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. <clears throat> Today is the day of salvation. To cast your cares on Christ. To come to him in humility, knowing that he does all things well and he does it in his time, with gratitude for the delay with gratitude for the delay. Because if God had not tarried, you would not have fallen on your knees before Him. Periodically, I go to Orangewood Christian School where my wife teaches fifth grade, and I do a little chapel. And if enough time has passed that they've forgotten the previous one, then I get asked again, I was before my, I, I asked my wife's whole fifth grade class to come to the front of the room one time. And I had a bag, a clear plastic bag with candy in it. And the clear plastic was part of my strategy. They could see what was on the other end of this experiment. And I stood, I turned toward the side of the room and I said, Mrs. Goto's fifth graders, line up here. There were few injuries. all of which were of a mild variety. And of course, you can imagine the usual suspects made it to the front of the line. 
Then I walked to the end of the line, and I said what my fifth grade teacher had said to my fifth grade class, end of the line goes first. Not fair! Maybe, but not faith. Because it is where Jesus stands in line himself in the incarnation. He works his way from the bottom up. So this one, to this one, the humble, he will answer. At the right time, he died for the ungodly, the scriptures tell us. He himself would join the little girl where the little girl had been. He himself would go down to death. He himself would be unclean by the sins of his people laid upon him. But he would only sleep because by his resurrection from the dead, he is even able to make dead things live. And he would destroy death forever from within. Jesus is a worthy object of faith. He makes unclean things clean. And he redefines true virtue as humble reliance, impoverished, empty-handed appeal to him. Will you pray with me? Now we understand a little more, Lord, how it is that you fill the hungry with good things. You bind up the brokenhearted. Lord, let this be our prayer this morning with the psalmist. I sought the Lord and he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed.